Good morning. Good to see you here on campus and those of you here with us online. It's really good to have you here with us today. We are starting a new series I'm really excited about. It's going to be a longer series than we typically have done where we try to stay within a month or so, three to four weeks. This one's going to be 11 weeks long. It's going to be called The Certainty. It'll take us right through Easter into the Sunday after Easter and all of that's on purpose. Um, you'll kind of guess why as we go. Um, today we're looking at the certainty, it's reliable. That's the title. Now, when I came across the phrase that we're going to be looking at today, it just kind of leapt into my heart or jumped off the page or just was screaming at me, this is something we need to get a hold of. And so I'm excited about it. It's going to be uh, good for us. It's going to be particularly good for us because I'll just ask a series of questions. How many of you have heard over and over again how uncertain everything is? You know, all this last year, it seems like nothing is certain. And we were just feeling uncertain about when things will get back to normal, when things will change this way, and when the vaccines will be effective, when the vaccines will come out, and what happens, etc., etc. And so to just get to the place where we can know for certain some things and build off of that is really, really important for us. So this gets really personal. I think it'll get really personal for you as well because in this last, I don't know what it's been now, whole bunch of months, um, have you experienced this where the the frustration of the kind of the sense of security being diminished or taken away or your, your, your solid foundation pulled out from underneath you, whatever that looks like for you, it causes your, your fuse to go shorter sometimes? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced where it just feels like uh, the peace is, is gone, the, the conflicts rise? Well, there's seasons of that. Then just as you adjust, there's some new uncertainty, and you're just getting you know, thrown around in new things, and you just feel like, what is this world going to look like for our kids? What is this world going to look like for our grandkids? What What is the future going to be like for us? And the, that kind of sense of certainty that we maybe had before, which I don't know why we had that sense of certainty, but we had that kind of sense of certainty before is pulled out from underneath us. What do we hang on to then to establish a greater confidence, a greater sense of peace with God and with ourselves and with one another? And what's it going to take to get a hold of the certainty? And we're going to see that phrase and uh, spend some time on that for a while. Now, I had to really scramble this morning to think through a change in my message this morning because of something that happened yesterday after preparing for all of this that pulled the carpet underneath from my sense of certainty and my sense of security. Um, and it's something I feel like you need to know about for your sense of security as well. Um, somebody texted somebody in our church under my name. And I didn't text. Fortunately, that somebody in our church uh, read the text, and it didn't quite sound like me, even though it signed off, love and peace, Pastor Jim Hammond. <laughs> and it just kind of talked about how things are really crazy right now. Hope you and your family are doing well. If you have some time uh, to run an errand for me, can you get back to me? That was all it was. Love and peace, Pastor Jim Hammond, from a number not mine. And uh, so I said, no, that's not me. 
and I began to look into it. And so I let you know about that because two times in the last 10 months, somebody has used my name to scam on people. I, if there's more than one member who's hearing that kind of thing, we need to know about it so we can investigate further what's going on. So if you get texts or weird emails from me that don't sound like me, please call the church office, let us know about it, and we can either verify or deny that's not from us or whatever. And also we'll gather some more data to figure out what's going on. But as you can imagine, for me, that feels very personal. Reputation is at stake. Trust is at stake. uh, Well-being of our church is at stake. Your security is at stake and all of that. And so it's a very, just a real live new example of the uncertain times we're living in. All across the nation, apparently this is happening where pastors are, people are impersonating their pastor and attacking somehow uh, people that might trust that name and uh, then taking advantage of that. And that just bothers me. My fuse just got shorter. (laughs) All right? And so you can understand that. Now, let's lighten it up a little bit. On the screen, we'll have, how many of you... Let me ask a question first. I'm going to ask how many of you know who first penned this quote, but first I want to know how many of you have heard this quote, nothing is certain except death and taxes. How many of you have heard that? I mean, it's just a kind of a funny quote. It gets, it's memorable. It's like, yeah, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And, and I'm bringing this up right now when all our W-2s are coming in. It's like, yep. And so you've all heard that. But how many of you actually know who first penned it? Don't tell who it is. Okay, um, my wife does. Uh, did I mention it already? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so this was first penned by, and here's the next slide, I'll just read it for you. Benjamin Franklin, in a letter to a French scientist, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, I don't know if I said that right, but um, during the chaos of the French Revolution, what was happening on the other, other side of the ocean, um, they were in... Uh, communication back and forth because of their science community was really interested in all the discoveries about electricity and Benjamin Franklin was into all of that as well. And the letter discussed Franklin's concern about how enduring would be our own newly adopted constitution. As France was going through all of their political turmoil, he was concerned about how our own constitution, how long would it be uh, for our nation to to come together and solidify over that constitution and would it hold us together and for how long? Those are, that's kind of the background of the quote. And he's feeling like, okay, we've done all this work. We've put all this together and how certain is it? And he makes a joke about there's nothing certain except for death and taxes. Now, ironically, and it's not very funny, um, He wrote the letter to his friend in France because it had been a year since he had heard from him and he thought maybe he was one of the casualties of all the executions that were taking place during that time frame. And so his first line in the letter was, "Um, are you still living? Are you still among the living? That was the first line of his letter. And then he makes this joke about there's nothing certain except death and taxes. And then while he's concerned that his friend is perhaps not living, Um, Five months after the writing of this letter, uh, Benjamin Franklin died at age 83. And so it's no joke. Death is certain. And 
it just kind of lets you know that there are some things certain. I'm not going to take this whole series in the direction that is the certainty of death. I'm going to take this whole series in the direction of what if you could know what is beyond death for certain and know that there's life after death for certain. And what if you could know that? That's the place that we're going to go with that. Now, let me get my thoughts together here a little bit before we move on. Um, So the phrase that we're looking at is going to be found, and we're going to read it in a moment, not just yet. It's going to be found in the Gospel of Luke. And so that's why this series is going to take so long. I'm going to do the best I can to take just the passages in Luke that are not also covered in the other Gospels and take us right through Easter and cover this theme that we're going to be introduced in the opening of Luke's Gospel. Who's Luke before we go there? Luke was the traveling companion of Paul and he is also a physician. He is a, a Greek, not a Jew, and he was a scholar, not one of those people that just was, I mean, he's a doctor and a scholar, and he writes a work of history that is not a notch down from, but just as powerful as the most um, classic Greek historian. So he knew the the methodology of research, investigation, and recording history the way the classic Greek historians did, and he opens his gospel the way the classic Greek historians would. So he's a highly educated scholar and uh, uh, closely associated with the Apostle Paul, and I happen to believe that while Paul spent so much time in prison, by the way, he also wrote the book of Acts, okay? Luke wrote Luke, and Acts. It's a two-part uh, work where it's like part one, the life of Jesus, part two, the Acts of the Apostles, which I like to call the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the movement of God, and Luke records both of these two, and let's just read his intro, and we'll see what his purpose is for writing. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Now, by this time, Luke is writing and probably already depending on one of the Gospels for some of the basis, the Gospel of Mark. There are a number of others who have written. Now, we have in in the New Testament four Gospels that are closely associated with apostles. So Luke is associated with an apostle Paul, and Matthew is an apostle. Mark was associated with Peter and with Paul. And John himself was an apostle. Those are the four writers of the four Gospels. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. We'll talk about him in a moment. So that you may know the certainty. There's the phrase that just jumped off the page for me. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Are you ready to write some points down? 
If you just want to look at them and memorize them, here we go. Point number one, your roadmap to deep certainty. Your roadmap to deep certainty. Now, I don't usually give you all these blanks all at once, but I need to, for this reason, to see the roadmap, to get the picture of where we're going and how to get there. Here are the steps, A, B, C, D. Your roadmap begins with hearing the certainty of this message and then believing this message and then living it out, but you won't actually know the kind of certainty that he's talking about until you've gone through A, B, C, and D, knowing, knowing the certainty. Now, our purpose as a church is to help all of us, but help people take steps from wherever they are to where God wants them to be. And so to get on this road trip, to join this journey, to experience this roadmap, you have to figure out, now, where am I on this? Have I heard the whole gospel proclamation? So that's where it starts. Now, if you have, and you have not really passed, go, collected 200, got to be, as in believing, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those things today. Um, I would hope that you would be encouraged enough to hear it again for the first time, so to speak, even though you've heard it before with open eyes, and then move to believing. And you still won't know with certainty until you start actually trying to live it out, and you still won't know with certainty until that knowing in a special sense takes place, but you need to know uh, where you are. Where are you in this? How certain are you? Now, He's writing this to Theophilus, so we need to ask the question, who is this Theophilus? So on the screen, I'll just speed by some things, that way it'll help us speed along here. Theophilus held a distinguished government office in either Greece or Rome, hard to know for sure. It appears that Luke knew him personally, and he addressed both of his documents, Luke and Acts, to Theophilus, and you can see it's Luke 1.3 for Luke and Acts 1-1 for Acts, and you'll, he'll, he'll name him as the recipient of both of these documents. The name Theophilus means lover of God. So some scholars want to just see this as symbolic as opposed to a real character. I believe, no, 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 no. He is a real character. This is probably his baptismal name because he probably is a Greek. He's probably not a Jew. He probably became a believer. And often, not always, often when you became a believer, you received kind of your new name with your new identity because your old self was uh, buried and died with Christ and resurrected to become the new you. So, If that's the case, we need to ask ourselves, all right, so why is Luke writing to this guy who's already a believer all this stuff? Because on the roadmap, he has heard, he has believed, he has begun to live, he's been instructed, but there still seems to be a gap in his sense of certainty. And so that's where we come in. Because we like him, and that's why some of the scholars want to say things like, I don't think he's really a real guy, because we sort of identify, all of us who are lovers of God, identify with the statement that it's written to all of us as Theophilus, oh, I'm writing this to you, lovers of God, and I think he's a real man, 
But we also claim to be lovers of God, many of us who believe because we've heard and we're beginning to live it because we've been instructed, but there still is a gap where we're not experiencing this certainty that when I die, I'm going to heaven. This certainty that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be and he's coming back. Whether it's before I die or after, he's coming back to live as King of Kings, Lord of Lords forever and ever. And how certain are you to the degree that it literally is creating in your life this confidence, this peace, this foundation that emanates with peace with yourself and peace with God and peace with others when everything around you is seemingly out of control and creating chaos even for your own life, just like I described earlier, that you can still, because of the certainty, live on a whole, whole different plane of life. So I believe Theophilus is, has got the A and got the B and got the C in the roadmap, but still missing the D, and that's why Luke is writing, to give him what he needs to get the D, the knowing with certainty that he's got this eternal life. So as I say this, I know that when I say things like this, believers in Jesus Christ, many of them still think in their minds, but how can you know for sure? I mean, really, with certainty, before you die, that you're going to heaven? How can you know that? Nobody can know that. None of us have been there. None of us have died. None of us have got there. And I say, well, none of us. Jesus has. And the most powerful evidence for the truth of the gospel is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the easiest thing to point to the evidence that something truly happened to create this movement that Theophilus is so familiar with. And now Luke is writing, and in a sense, all of the gospel of Luke is powerfully certain because of the events they have experienced and know for sure is taking place. And you're looking at the events of the gospel through the lens of the movement, and that's his two-part work. And so that's going to be really important for us to know how to get a hold of for ourselves. Now, just in case you're still thinking, yeah, but you can't really know that. You can't really know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I mean, no, 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 for sure, to where while I'm facing death, I can have no fear. And let me just say this. Luke knew it for sure. The apostles knew it for sure. I'm going to uh, quote John in a moment, who knew it for sure? Jesus knew it for sure. We can know it for sure. And just in case you think, oh, come on, really? Here's the verse out of John before we go further into Luke. In 1 John 5, 12 through 13, we read this. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I want you to notice on that phrase very carefully what he is not saying. He is not saying so that you know that when you die, you will then live forever. He's saying something more powerful than that, even though that is true and implied by this. He's saying something way more powerful than that. He's saying you already have it if you believe in Jesus Christ. You already have eternal life now 
And when you die, you will experience it in its fullest dimension. But the reason you can know now is this knowing is, and look at what he says, if you have the Son of God, you have eternal life. That's verse 12. What does that mean? So a lot of times we read stuff like this and we go, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. How do you have a person? How do you have a person? This is talking about Jesus. How do you have a person? If you have a person, you have eternal life is what this is saying. So what he's saying is when you possess Jesus, well, is that like I have a car, I have a truck, I have a house, I get the possession thing. What are you, what are you talking about here? Now let's put it in simple terms so we can at least get a hold of this. If you have a relationship with Jesus, and it's a particular kind of relationship, you have eternal life. So when I say the roadmap is from hearing, believing, living, then knowing, it is not knowing about Jesus. It is a deeper kind of knowing. It's having a relationship with Jesus kind of knowing. It's a particular kind of knowing Jesus that gives you this incredible confidence that is knowing the certainty. Now, by contrast, because he's saying if you have the Son, you have eternal life, let me just use a different phrase that's nonsensical. I have a stranger. That's a nonsensical statement. It's even a nonsensical statement if I said, I know a stranger. If you're using it in the sense of knowing this person, because a stranger is a stranger because you don't have a relationship with this person. If you know a stranger, that stranger is not a stranger. Okay? And so when we start talking about having Jesus, it's in the opposite of that sense. It's not a knowing about a stranger, knowing a stranger enough to know their name and know about them. You are, they're no longer a stranger. They're an acquaintance when you know all those kinds of things. But this kind of knowing is more like when I say, I have a wife. It's a covenant knowing where it's now I, you can rightfully say, I have a wife. When I know my wife in a covenant knowing, it is an intimate kind of knowing where the possession of wife in your life changes you from when you were single. Completely changes you. So when you say, I have Jesus, so I know I have life, it's that change with a covenant knowing of who Jesus is in a relationship with the real Jesus where it's not a stranger, not a knowing about, but a knowing the certainty of Jesus in your life that you truly can experience heaven this side of death. So you know that when you die, this reality continues forever because this reality is a certainty assured by the person you know. Well, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. Now, the thing is, a lot of people have gotten so used to camping in the camp of doubt that they camp out in the place of skepticism, that they doubt their faith and trust their doubts, that they can't quite know 
with certainty. And so I will hopefully spend some time exposing you to the kinds of things that Luke, the historian, through careful investigation, gets into so that you can experience a little bit of this kind of knowing that gives you this kind of confidence. Now, I want to introduce you to a character that's a character in history by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Uh, he wrote a lot of books, and here's just a little bit about him. Sir William, Sir William Ramsey, 1851 to 1939, was an archaeologist, a professor at the University of Edinburgh, and biblical skeptic who thought the Bible was nothing but made-up facts. Now, we're living a day of fake news, a lot of fake news that causes us to not believe news and not know what's true that's coming our direction anymore. And when you read uh, things about miracles and things about uh, the kinds of things Jesus did, he was in that camp. He camped in the place of skepticism. And he was a well-educated man. He says, this cannot be. This is just false facts that are uh, made up facts and stories until he set out to prove it. So he was going to write a book how everything that's in the Gospels is absolutely not correct. Because first of all, in reading the book of Acts, he found all kinds of terms and things that didn't match what he knew about the location. So he was going to just prove Luke wrong. But at every turn, as he dug into stuff and found actual archaeological artifacts, every detail, every turn kept confirming (laughs) what he was trying to disprove, that all these unheard of titles for rulers and all these unheard of things over and over again turned out that Luke was spot on and nobody had discovered it yet. And he wrote books and books and books about it. The evidence proved the opposite of his assumption. He eventually wrote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. And that's just the shortest synopsis I can place on Sir William Ramsey, who was a very important archaeologist in that era that just started to lay the groundwork for, hey, this, this document... I don't know what you think about it in terms of whether it's God's word or just a historian's word. I happen to believe, and I've come to the place where you can come to know with certainty Jesus is the Son of God if you'll even read it as history. Once you know that Jesus is the Son of God, you better start believing the word of God because Jesus, who rose from the dead, believed the Old Testament was God's word. And then he breathed life into the apostles and said, the Spirit of God is now going to teach you and train you so that you'll understand everything I proclaim to you. Now you take this and pass it along. Every book in the New Testament is connected to one of those apostles. And so you will come to the place where you believe this whole thing is reliable. But if you don't yet, and you're camping out in the camp of skepticism, don't worry. Just look at it like history and investigate your skepticism, and you'll come to the conclusion, like Sir William Ramsey, that this is reliable. And now you can know with certainty, if you establish a relationship with a person you don't yet know, and how do you get to know a stranger? Interactions in a relationship. And as you get to know the stranger, Jesus Christ, in an interaction with relationship, you're going to get to the place where you start to believe that he's real. He's answering your prayers. He cares about you. And he's showing up in ways where this covenant knowing is now your experience. And you're going, I do. He's wooing me. He's saying, will you be mine? I said, absolutely. I will be yours. I'll follow you. You gave your life for me. I'm going to follow you to the death. 
because you conquered death. I'm not afraid. And that's how the movement exploded across history. Point number two. The ancient legends just don't read like this. Now I'm going to just put in front of us the phrases from Luke 1, 1 through 4, which we just read. Here are the phrases. Events that have been fulfilled among us. He's writing this to people who have seen the events, the powerful movement, the, the move of God, and he's, he, all of this message about Jesus was handed down by eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses who were still living. I have carefully investigated everything, not just the research documents that were just 30 years previous. He had interviewed the living eyewitnesses, and he had time to do so because, ah, God was so sovereign that he decided, okay, traveling companion, you got to do something besides twiddling your thumbs while your friend can't go any further because he's in prison in Jerusalem for years before he's transported to Rome. So Luke is researching, 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 and we have so much that isn't in the other Gospels that Luke records because he had face-to-face interviews with people the others didn't have those interviews with. We have all the data from Mary from Luke. He interviewed Mary is my conclusion. And we're going to look at some of the kinds of things along the way that Luke took time to research uh, as we're in this series. So I have carefully investigated everything to write an orderly sequence. Now we need to kind of settle in on this because people still think, oh, come on, this is just all made up facts. There's really, really tricky novelists that are very creative that write these things that sound so real, and it's obviously not real, and they can write this stuff out that they're doing all this. But here's what an expert in ancient documents says, and this is C.S. Lewis, a quote from him. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. With the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. That genre hadn't developed until the 1800s. And so out of the blue, you got multiple writers that developed that genre? We have no ancient literature. No, all the ancient legends are always so far removed from the events that they're supposedly point, painting a, re, a legend about, so far removed that there's no detail. And it's completely different. This is historical reportage, he's saying. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. And this is coming from an ancient document expert who reads the ancient legends. It says there's just no no comparison. So look at it like history and make some of your conclusions and pretty soon you get to the place in your life like I have where you trust your life to it and that this is life-giving and it's reliable. So... 
let me just kind of move along in this way and say, can I invite you? And would you take me up on it? If you could move to the place of certainty and to know deep down, not just know about God, yeah, I believe in God, know about Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus. By the way, demons know about God. Demons know about Jesus. And James says, knowing in this sense doesn't make you a believer. That definition of faith, oh, I believe in Jesus, oh, I believe in God, does not save You have to have a covenant knowing with God, a covenant knowing with Jesus where you say, I do, I'm all in. And when you enter in with that kind of commitment, you will experience a certainty in this relationship that becomes real. Because if I haven't really expressed it yet, I'll express it now. That... A covenant relationship with Jesus is established when you trust that what he did on the cross is for you, that his crucifixion is taking the guilt of your sin upon his own body so that you don't have to take the guilt and pay for that guilt yourself. And then he is buried with your guilt to take it away, and he's raised from the dead. And in the transaction of that whole, because he has done that, God's plan to literally take residence in you so that you can have Jesus by his spirit as a possession inside of your life can take place. And once you have God's spirit as a possession, Jesus in you and you in Jesus, everything changes. It's no longer a head game. It's more than a head game in this kind of knowing. And it's hearing Believing, living, and knowing with certainty, with such conviction and passion and feeling, where the Spirit of God literally changes your human spirit to reorient itself to God instead of self, so that now you're not self-centered, you're God-centered, and in that God-centered self, empowered by the Spirit, by grace, because of what Jesus has done, not because of something you did through religion, because you trust what Jesus has done, he changes you so that now your spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to direct your mind, will, and emotions centering on God instead of every time centering on self, doing the very thing you know is not good for you, and messing yourself up, Jesus is the answer for all that so that you grow and grow in more certainty as you orbit around the center of your life being Jesus himself. So I'm inviting you to jump into the longest document of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. If you finish that, I'm inviting you to go back to back and jump right into his next document, which is the second longest document in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And I wasn't going to go here, but I have a little bit of time, so I will go here. Luke has written more words in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul in just two books. We always think of the Apostle Paul as written almost all of the New Testament. He wrote 13 letters. Luke wrote these two books and has way more in terms of words and volume than the Apostle Paul himself. But they're all agreed Jesus is the source of our certainty.
So if you're willing to go for it, don't wait for me because I'm only going to take uh, 11 weeks. I want you to blow through this and blow through this as fast as your, the, your spirit just is just feasting on the book of Luke and the book of Acts because I would love for you to see the book of Luke through the lens of Acts as we're going through this series. And so if that seems like a challenge you want to take up to grow your certainty, to know with certainty that you can have life after death, yes, but better than that, you can know right now, I have eternal life. And the kingdom of heaven is already invading my life and making sweeping changes. This is glory. I have Jesus, and Jesus has me. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us with such clarity, not only in revelation, in words, and words that men penned, that you inspired, but in acts and events and moves of history and supernatural intrusion and revelation that's so personal. We pray that even beginning this day, that you'll begin to reveal yourself to our hearts, to our minds, that you will create in us a growing certainty as we enter into covenant with you and have you as Savior, that there will be this glory that we can't describe as something that we've attained, but you have given by grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, uh, let me remind myself of the exact phrase. We're going to take a look at one of the uncovered events of, in kind of pre-birth of Jesus' narrative and about Zechariah when he says, how can I know this? Well, we're just talking about knowing the certainty, and I think it's great that we're going to look at this phrase that he uses. How can I know this? And what happened for a season of his life as a result of that question. So I hope to see you back next week. If you need prayer about anything that you're struggling with, hey, we have these struggles. You heard some of the short fuse stuff that I had just yesterday. I'd love to have prayer about that. Join me in prayer about that. If you have something going on in your life, our prayer team will come to this side of the stage. Uh, we'll be wearing masks for your protection. And so leaders, if you're able to join me up over here, we'd love to pray for whatever's going on. And if it's the same thing week after week after week, hey, that's how it goes. And that's what we need. And just keep praying, keep praying, keep praying if that's what we need to do. God bless you. See you next week.